Welcome to the Work Hard, Play Hard podcast. My name is Rob Murgatroyd, and I'm a former doctor turned lifestyle entrepreneur. Each week, I interview some of the best minds on the planet on the science of achievement and the art of fulfillment. Come take this journey with me. Excuses are over. It's time to live. Even though I'm, you know, all about trusting your path, following your soul and your heart, I think that there's importance in allowing whatever it is that you're supposed to be building on the side to grow in a way that feels good and a way that, you know, feels organic for you. When things are destitute or, or you feel like you don't have enough money coming in or you feel like things aren't working out for you, that the right people at the right time or the right opportunities will always come up. I can really say now that I feel like I'm in a pure flow state because the things that I'm doing come so naturally to me and feel so good for me. So that's extremely fulfilling because I feel like, you know, totally in alignment, which is, you know, the best feeling. What's up, everybody? This is Rob Murgatroyd, and welcome to another episode of the Work Hard, Play Hard show. This episode features Katie Fenn. You can find her on Instagram and elsewhere at Katie Fenn. I wanted to have Katie on the show because like me, she's made some major changes in her life and she decided that being a lawyer just wasn't for her anymore. So, you know, look, when you're a professional and you have a lot tied up in tuition and status and your practice and what people may think of you if you leave, it's not always so easy to get out of it. So we dug deep and we talked about what it feels like for her to navigate the waters of leaving a professional career. And I shared my struggles as well. So I met Katie through my mastermind that we're in together. And, you know, I was thinking as I'm wrapping up the end of my mastermind this year with her, I realized how much progress I've made just by being in a mastermind, which is why I created my own version of a mastermind called the Work Hard, Play Hard Mastermind. If you want to be a part of this with us, fill out an application at workhardplayhardmastermind.com and we'll jump on the call to see if you're a good fit for the group. Think of the mastermind as two parts. The first is the trip itself. We'll be heading to Boston, Monaco, and Florence for some amazing experiences. And the second part is the mastermind itself, where our group of 25 people will help you accelerate what you want to achieve or help you figure out what's next for you. Okay, you can find Katie on the socials at Katie Fenn. Be sure to take a screenshot of this episode, share it on the socials, and remember to tag me and Katie Fenn. So without further ado, please enjoy this conversation I had with Katie Fenn. Katie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. You know what? I have been looking forward to this for so long. You are in my mastermind and I've got to learn a little bit about your journey. And I'm super excited to kind of dig into the details of what makes Katie, Katie. So uh, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. So I think what we'll do is we'll cover a little bit about your backgrounds, talk about the kind of work that you're doing now, move into a little bit about what you do to play in your life, to balance out your life, and then we'll wrap up with some rapid fire questions. Sound good? Perfect. All right. So let's first talk about growing up in Canada. Where exactly did you grow up? And can you give us maybe an example of the kinds of things you did with your parents when you were, say, 10 to 15? Sure. Okay. So I grew up in Toronto, which is also where I currently live. Um, Toronto, I think most people are pretty familiar with it now because Drake talks about Toronto all the time. But Toronto is an amazing city. um, So I've always been here. When I was growing up here, I mean, it's the biggest and most sort of cosmopolitan city in Toronto. So it definitely has the most things going on. So I really took advantage of that when I was younger. My parents were very much about getting my brother and I involved in the city and the different things it had to offer. So from when I was 10 to 15, I was, you know, taking sculpture classes down at the art gallery. I was doing a lot of ballet and jazz, a lot of dance classes. That was a huge part of my life. And otherwise, I was downtown a lot with my family, just kind of exploring and walking around. And then I guess as I got a little bit more into my preteen years, then that was done, obviously, hanging out with more of my girlfriends. You know, I love that Canadian accent. I, I'm going to count how many times I hear a boot and oh, Toronto. Yeah. 
I love that. From one North American to another. (laughs) Let's let's fast forward a bit to around 17. You you wrote a vision for your life that went something like, I'm going to be a litigation lawyer. I'm going to be working on Bay Street. I'm going to live in a condo by the CN Tower. And I'm going to date a guy who wears a suit and takes trips around the world. And that actually happened, yeah? It did. It did happen. Every single detail of that vision really actually did manifest in a really incredible way. So then the question becomes, what's your thoughts on... Maybe maybe a better question is, let's go back to that moment when you were writing it. What was the intention behind it? Was it just something like, this is just what I want in my life and I'm going to make it happen? And if you had to do it over again, would you have crafted that vision in the same way? Yeah, I think as I was writing it, I was inspired by Oprah. And it was at the time when I wrote that was when kind of a lot of the stuff around The Secret was really coming into mainstream media. And I thought, oh, this is amazing. I'm just going to follow follow this plan. And so in that, I was reflecting on, well, what would be the most epic vision of for my life? And I think at 17, you don't really know, but I was thinking, okay, well, it would be amazing to be a lawyer. At that time, I knew I wanted to be a lawyer just because I thought that um, the law was really fascinating. And, you know, I grew up in Toronto and, and I loved being downtown. And so I thought, well, wouldn't it be incredible if I could live in one of these beautiful new condos right downtown, right in the heart of everything? And wouldn't it be amazing if I, you know, dated someone who was a professional and successful in their own right? So it really did come from a genuine place of me thinking at that time, like, wow, this would really be the best version of my life. And so looking back, I, you know, it was amazing. That was the whole thing. Really. It was a beautiful vision and it really did come from my heart at that time. And so I'm happy that I did it. The issue that arose were then when I got there, it's just the person that I was at 17 and my wants and desires then shifted by the time that that vision actually came to fruition. So then the question becomes, do you think that it's still valuable? You know, this is one, it's such an interesting conversation because we were talking off, off uh, line here a little bit. I'm 52 now. And I can remember, you know, with my buddies when we were in our thirties and we're talking about our 10 year plan. And then our forties, we talked about our 10 year plan. And now we look back on it and we laugh because it's like, you can't make a 10 year plan. It just, you look back and it's so different. So what's your thoughts on, you know, crafting a vision that is sort of that far out. Do you think that there's like a time limit that you should put on it? Yeah. I mean, I think that now I agree. I think that 10 year visions are, are not that helpful because you evolve. Like if you're the type of person that's on a growth path and has more of a growth mindset, the person that you are 10 years from now is going to be completely different. And I think that there'll be so many other dreams and hopes or inspirations or passions that come your way over the course of 10 years that are going to cause that vision to pivot. But so I'm actually now, I really do believe though in holding a vision because it allows us to have something to, you know, work toward and and make meaning and and take inspired action around. But I, I like to now keep my visions to kind of one year, three year, maybe five year visions, but also knowing that there's so much more at play. And a lot of my kind of practice now is actually just to surrender more, to really just say yes um, to every opportunity kind of that comes to me that feels good, not knowing where it's all sort of leading. And that's kind of been, I've now been sort of practicing the opposite of, of having this sort of one vision and instead have just been allowing myself to surrender and let the vision kind of unfold. There is so much in what you just said, and I hope that people get that. It's, you know, in your 20s, it's so easy to just, you know, just be, just like holding on to it, you know, but sometimes you look back and when things just don't happen the way that you thought they were, you know, the universe is looking down going, look, dude, I tried to redirect you here. You you didn't let me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you, you wanted to be on Bay Street. I tried to move you. You didn't want to let me do it. You know what I mean? Totally. So let's talk a little bit about, you know, so now you got the vision and you sort of, you sort of wind up into this world of, you know, like the television show Suits. (laughs) What was it about, you know, the reality of that vision that you manifested that you didn't actually love once you got it? I think that it was, you know, at the time when I created that vision, I didn't have a strong sense of self. I think particularly in your 20s, you're really 
becoming yourself and you're learning who you are because prior to that, so much of who you are is kind of just based on your parents' expectations, kind of by osmosis of who your friends are. And so all of a sudden it was when I got into that vision, I was thinking, well, wait a second, is this actually who I am? You know, do I actually even like any of these things? And that kind of led to this whole existential crisis of like, wait a second, do I even like any of this? Who am I? What do I like? And at that time I was like, I don't even know. Um, and then I sort of took each aspect of my life. So even in law looking at, okay, well, you know, what is it about this that I do like, and what is it about it that I don't, but I kind of had to mindfully break down every aspect of my life from relationships to my job and, and do that actual internal reflection on, do I actually like this? Is this actually something that, that lights me up and inspires me? With law, in the end, it it was. There were aspects of law that I really loved. But a lot of the reason I think now why I had gotten into law at the time that I did was just, you know, I was I was good at it. I liked reading about it, but it didn't mean that it was necessarily lighting me up um, and wasn't what I was most passionate about, even if it was something that I found intellectually interesting. Well, you know, when you step into that world of really sort of not loving what it is that you do, the universe will definitely knock on your door. And for you, that definitely happened. You found yourself, you know, seeking refuge in a washroom at work, you know, drinking more vodka sodas than maybe you should have, more hangovers. What were the steps that sort of led you out of that place in your life? Sure. Yeah. At that time I was, yeah, I was so overwhelmed. The stress of the stress of my job was really overwhelming for me. And that question of who am I was also really overwhelming for me. So yeah, I numbed out for a really long time. Um, the biggest catalyst was I started meditating and I think that that was, that was the first kind of and most massive shift that I made. I just decided one day that I was going to start. And I started with just meditating for five minutes a day. And I would do it right when I would get home from work, just as this sort of buffer between when I left the office. And then when I got home to my boyfriend or my roommates or whatever, just to kind of recenter me and not take work home with me. And then meditation really was the gateway that opened up everything because at first it just helped me to be less stressed out when I would get home. But then it started to become this kind of place of refuge within myself that I could start to go to just to you know, feel that sense of ease, feel that sense of peace. And then from there I started, it became also my space for just self-reflection and me to ask some of those more difficult questions of myself of, well, what do I really want? So what does meditation look like for you now, now that you've sort of embraced that in your life, recognizing how valuable it is for you? You know, if we sort of like get a little granular, how often are you doing it? What's it look like? Are you using an app? Like, just kind of walk me through that. So I meditate every day. I mean, basically ever since six years ago, when I started meditating, I haven't gone a day that I didn't meditate. Um, Mm -hmm. It's a massive passion to mine. I still teach it quite a bit as well. Um, For me now, it looks like I'll meditate anywhere between 10 to 45 minutes a day. When I'm more overwhelmed, that's when I meditate for longer. And if I'm kind of, you know, coasting and things are great and I'm feeling clear headed, then that's when I'll meditate for shorter periods of time. And for me, I study and and practice more of what's called the Vipassana meditation, which is basically you're just observing your thoughts as they come in and you're just continuing to focus on your breath. And then at a certain point, the thoughts just stop. Um, the stop, the thoughts just stop happening. But for most people, and for me and my practice for a really long time, the idea is not that your that your mind's going to stop or that your thoughts are going to stop. It's just you become the observer of the thoughts, and it's from that place that you're kind of just watching this movie, this movie go by, and um, and it's very calming and very relaxing. So that's that's still the practice that I do. I just started. I just worked it up little by little. Like when I first started practicing, I just set my iPhone alarm for five minutes, and I would just sit there thinking, "Let go, let go." I think when people are first starting, it's a lot easier for them to have something called a mantra that allows their mind to latch onto something like you know, saying let go or just focusing in on the breath and counting. I actually am not a fan of, of apps because I think that they basically become, the mind gets addicted to the app and latches onto the app or thinks that it needs the guidance when really the way that we transcend our mind and the way that we get clarity and focus and all these amazing benefits of meditation are to really sit 
and do like the ninja warrior training of really sitting with our thoughts and starting to control control them. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, that monkey mind just keeps going. It's really, really tough. You know, I learned, um, I don't know, some somewhere along uh, the lines with some Tony Robbins work that I did, he sort of referred to the mind as the minds to sort of like separate it and, and have you recognize that, you know, your, your mind's job is not to make you happy. It's there to protect you. Totally. And you know, to be able to look at the separation between those two, the way to do that is the way you're just describing with meditation. And uh, there's a guy that I just got turned on to. His name is Sam Harris, and he wrote a book called Waking Up. Yeah, I love him. Do you know him? Yes. Well, he just came out with an app. I know you're not a fan of apps, but uh, Tim Ferriss recommended it. He, he worked on the app with him, and it just came out this week. And I tried it, uh, ironically, yesterday. And it's really, really, really good um, in teaching Vipassana meditation, which I've never done before. Awesome. And it's not, it's not easy for me to do. So you may, you may dig that. So I want to talk a little bit about uh, the world of law. You know, I personally know very few lawyers that love what they do. My brother's a lawyer. Um, he actually kind of likes it. What do you think it is about the legal profession that has lawyers having to manage anxiety and drinking and drugs and, you know, really shutting down in their relationships and depression, et cetera? Um, that's a good question because it, it is true. Most lawyers hate it. And part of my resistance in actually leaving law was I felt like I finally had these tools that made me happy in it, but it just wasn't, it's ultimately not my path right now. The, the issue with law, and it's something that I, that I feel really passionate about, is why lawyers are, you know, all the studies show lawyers have the highest rates of addiction, loneliness, and, and, you know, abuse and all these things. And the number one reason when they've studied lawyers is because there is a lack of autonomy. So that is the number one cause of why I think lawyers get, get so overwhelmed and then use these different numbing um, techniques is because when you don't have power over your schedule, over, you know, the, the demands that other people put on you, your client's expectations, you know, even what a judge is going to do with your case. Like there's just so many things that are so out of your control in law that it's really difficult for people to navigate. There's not a lot of independence. You're, you know, you're kind of at the whim of your client. You're at the whim of, you know, different partners or associates in your firm. Um, you're at the whim of a judge or who your opposing counsel is. And for that reason, it can be really overwhelming. And the other thing too, is that I think that law can be quite thankless. You know, it's adversarial, which means if you, you're fighting with people all day and it can be really difficult to not, um, to not take things personally. And the other thing too is that, you know, I think in some ways as well, there can also be a bit of monotony with law. You know, you become an attorney and you specialize in one area and you learn that area of law really well. And then you're just day in and day out, you have different clients coming to you with different problems, but they're all kind of one shade off from each other. And so I think for a lot of people, it just, it can become quite routine too, which is, I think what also makes people feel stagnant, you know? this idea of, in, okay, for the next 40 years, I'm going to be practicing this one area, just seeing the same types of issues every day. Oh my God. You just, you summed up my chiropractic career in a nutshell. It was just, it was a shade of a different kind of neck or back problem. Right? So <laughs> yeah, my neck, my neck, my back, my back. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, God, it's so interesting. And that's one of the things that just it felt so disconnecting for me. So you you made the decision ultimately to leave your law practice and you're very, very young. How are you, how old are you now? I I'll be 31 at the end of this month. Okay. So it's interesting and probably in my estimation, you can correct me, but you're a little young to be leaving a law practice. And it seems like most people don't do it at your age. What would you say were the major blocks that you had to overcome in order to leave one business and you know go into another one? Because I know you're like right at the cusp now, right? Yeah. Well, now I've fully left. I left. I'm five weeks out of having completely left my practice just to run my business. Congratulations. Thank you. The big block that I had 
Ooh, there are a few. I mean, I think I was, I practiced for six years and there was a lot in law that I really loved and that I was really good at. And I think especially when it comes to women in law and retaining women in law, I was doing a lot of work and advocacy around that. And so part of my block with not wanting to leave to run my business was, you know, I felt like I was really actually making a difference in terms of the profession itself, because I think there are so many of these issues with mental health and with keeping women in law. And so, you know, I was having this heart mind balance of, wow, you know, I actually think I'm making a difference in this profession, but whoa, my heart is leading me in a completely um, different direction. And I think the other thing is that, you know, you're in, I just happened to have gone to law school straight out of college. So I was really young. I was like 23 or 24 when I first started practicing. And I think that for me, the other, you know, real hesitation that I had with leaving was just, this was a part of my identity for so long. It was part of my vision when I was 17, I worked really hard to get there. And, you know, did I really go through all of that school, incur all of that debt, you know, go through all of this training just to walk away from it? And so that's why my transition was really, it took a long time. I think a lot of people actually leave, you know, once they sort of have this idea, maybe for a different business or whatever, they think it's going to make them that much more happier. They're that much more passionate about, they tend to leap into it right away. And for me, it was a five-year process. I built out my business really organically on the side of my practice. And so I left at a time where I really actually felt like I learned all the lessons I was supposed to learn in law or the work that I was supposed to have done there was complete, at least, you know, for this current chapter. You know, there's a lot of people that are listening to this show that are in a similar place, whether it's professional or they're just working in a job and they have another, another idea or another path or or something they want to go down. What advice would you give them? Um, It sounds like maybe some of that advice might be don't jump ship too quickly, have a better plan, but you know, I'll let you answer that. Yeah, I think that the biggest thing now that I see is is that people tend to get the idea and then they just jump. And then I've also seen a lot of people fail as a result. So even though I'm, you know, all about trusting your path, following your soul and your heart and and that everything will work out, I'm also really pragmatic. And I think that there's importance in allowing whatever it is that you're supposed to be building on the side to grow in a way that feels good and a way that you know, feels organic for you. And so what I tell people now is to get rid of the timeline, to keep on taking the action that they feel called to take every day to build out whatever they're supposed to build out, but not to have, you know, kind of an end date on when they need to leave. Unless their their current job is toxic, which I do sometimes see, but when someone's in a toxic job and then has this like other passion they want to follow, then my advice to them and what I get people to do is get into what I call a cocoon job, which is a job that, you know, it's in a skill or a, you know, a company that you believe in that it's, you know, you can kind of do the work with your eyes closed, it's easy, it's not stressful for you that allows you then the freedom to build out what you're supposed to be building on the side. And so you can be in that safe cocoon of having that regular income and and having everything taken care of while you build things out. Because I think that when you're in this state of, you know, sort of scarcity or pressure that you're not going to build out your creative project and, and whatever that is, whether it's a business or or anything else, when you're in that mindset, you want to be able to create freely. And so being in a cocoon job, I think is the next important thing. And then you'll just know from there when it's time, like same thing with a cocoon, the butterfly knows when it's time for the butterfly to fly off. Like you'll just know. And for some people that's in six months, for me, it was five and a half years later. And and for everyone, it's different, but you'll know. So you say get rid of the timeline because it sort of shifts the scarcity and pressure piece? Yeah, I think so. I think people put these unnecessary timelines and pressure on themselves when when I just don't see how it's really serving them. Unless they're, you know, unless they're not happy with where they're currently at, such to a point that they have to make a big change or they're, you know, feeling this deep because I'm all about, you know, teaching people to really trust their intuition. So if your intuition is telling you, you know, this is the time, you've got to leave, it's time for you to start this, great. You know, go do that. But for many of us, I think it's we're getting these sort of first little ideas of what our path could look like and it takes time to kind of flesh out where the universe is leading us basically. And so just to allow to be in more of a flow state with it. 
Mm-hmm. You know what? You're you're actually you're actually making me think of something. I did an interview with uh, a mutual friend of ours, Sahara Rose. Do you remember oh, yeah. her? Uh, she lived in Bali for a period of time. And, you know, she said it was so welcoming and I love being there. And it was just like this, it was like entering, you know, it was like entering the womb, you know, it was incredible. She said, but the thing about Bali is when it's time to move, that womb will spit your ass right out. (laughs) so, So I think what you're describing here is sort of like when the energy shifts, it shifts and you're just no, you're just not a lawyer anymore. Totally. It was, it was wild. And I remember I had a few mentors and I'd be talking to them and I'd say, you know, I know that I'm supposed to be le- like leaving my job. I know that I'm, I had the vision. I knew I'm supposed to, you know, I know I'm going to be speaking. I know I'm going to be leading these retreats. I know I'm going to be coaching, but it just doesn't feel like it's time yet. So here I'm building this stuff out, but it just doesn't feel right. And their advice to me always was, you know, you'll know it'll feel one of them described it. She's like, it will feel like a baby that it's just, it's about to come out. Like, you will. And, and the funny thing is for me, I finally had that moment. I was starting to get glimmers of it in January of this year. And then it was in April. I was coming back from a retreat that I had just led in Costa Rica and I was on the plane and the the switch flipped and I got a really clear intuitive message of just, it's time. It's time. You need to, it was the strongest message was you need to be out by September. And so, you know, backpack from wherever you need from there. But the message was really strong that as of September of this year, I needed to be out. And it was like a very authoritative voice. And so I followed that. And now it's funny because I see that really since September, since I did leave, it's been so full on in my business. It's been um, beautiful and and incredible. But I also see, oh, yeah, there's no way at that point that I could have continued to do both. Yeah, you have to listen to that voice. You know, I've got a, I, I've got some perspective, right? I've got a twenty-year-old daughter, and I have a four-year-old daughter too, right? One from, um, you know, just one on one end of the spectrum, one on the other. And you know, with the four-year-old, I'm like, oh my god, I never want you to leave. I love you so much, but I know from the twenty-year-old that when he turned twenty, you're like, get out. Yeah. <laughs> you know? You know what I mean? So there is like the the energy just shifts in life and you have to you have to recognize it and listen to yeah, it. Yeah, you gotta ride the wave. Before I go into talking about retreats and coaching, which I'm interested in, I would be remiss if I didn't uh, step into a little gossip here, because who doesn't love a little gossip? And I must ask you about your time on the bachelorette. Amazing. I know you've been I know you've been asked about this a million times, but I, I can't help myself. It's too interesting. So can you tell us sort of the story about how The Bachelorette entered your life and maybe give us a couple of key lessons that you learned from the experience? Sure. So at the beginning of 2017, I decided, I mean, like this idea we were talking about earlier, that I was going to just surrender to life a little bit more. I was going to stop trying to plan and manifest and create all these things for my life. I knew what the vision was. I was going to let go of, of how they were going to happen. So I decided that if an opportunity came to me, the idea was that if I was ready, willing, and able to say yes, I would just say yes. And so I decided that I wanted to be on TV, sharing my message more. I was speaking with a friend who works in TV about um, about how I wanted to be doing more of that. And she said, you know, it's funny that you say that. I just got news that The Bachelor's casting right now. Why don't you apply? So there I, <laughs> I said, okay, fine. Why not? And I apply... And it was the whole thing was really just kind of fell into my lap. I did a you know two hour interview with the producers. Then I went away on vacation. I come back from vacation and get a call from the from the producers saying, "Oh, hey, we didn't want to bother you when we were on vacation, but we've just we pushed you through to the finals. We're pitching you to the network tomorrow, and basically you're on." Um, and so I just decided to leave and say yes to this crazy experience that had kind of fallen into my lap. It was really insane the experience. Um, I mean, you're in you're in complete isolation for two months. Like you have no, you're told what to do, what you can talk about. You're not allowed to write or read or work out or um, you know know what time it is or re, you know have your phone or a computer or anything. You're completely disconnected. So it was a really arduous, intense experience. But it was fascinating too. It was unlike any other life experience I've had. And the biggest takeaways that I took from it, the first thing was definitely just who are you 
absent everything that makes you you. Because think about it, in your day-to-day life, you are reminded every day of who you are because you speak to your family or your friends, you go to the job that you have, you wear the clothes that are familiar to you, you go to the places that are familiar to you. And if you take all of that away for a period of two months, you know, who are you absent everything that makes you you? And can you stay rooted in who you are without all the reminders basically of who you are? So that was like the biggest thing that I took away of who am I still the same person absent everything that makes me me when those things aren't around? And so, and I found that I was, but it was difficult to kind of to root into that. But that was one of my big takeaways and lessons from it was really just practicing who I am and to really remember that none of the things external to me make me me. That it's that whole idea that, you know, wherever you go, there you are. So that was a cool part of it. The other thing that was difficult and interesting too was that, you know, the show gets broadcast to millions of people. And I think that with anything, and at least in my business, I'm putting myself out there all the time. You know, it's it's me that's sharing these messages. It's a personal brand, it's a personal business. And there's a real element of every time you put yourself out there, and no, no matter what you're doing, you're going to be subject to scrutiny and other people's judgments or what they think of you. And so The Bachelor was like this insane thing that I did where I decided to be, you know, I was 100% myself on the show, but it was it was crazy basically to put myself out there to like millions of people and to be subject to all of their opinions, both good and bad about who I was and how I was and have them maybe misinterpret who I was or, you know, whatever. And I think that it was a really amazing lesson for me and learning to just really not care basically what other people think. You know, some people are going to really love me and some people aren't and that's okay. But it was like next level training in that because imagine every week I was having, you know, millions of strangers thinking about who I was and making their own judgments or or ideas on that and for me just to to let go of it basically. Did you watch it back? Yeah. Oh yeah. I watched it every week with a group of girlfriends, but then since it aired, I haven't, I haven't watched it. It's funny. It's literally the one year anniversary of it airing was, was just this week. So I'm thinking of maybe watching it back, but it was, um, yeah, it was, it was so crazy watching it back. Cause it was, it's so different, right? Like the story that they showed on TV was so different than the story that I experienced. And that when I first watched it back was really difficult because I thought it was going to be shown in one way. And the story that was shown was just so dissimilar from what I actually thought I experienced. Was it made up where they, you know, sort of weave together a story that really didn't happen or was your, was your perspective of what was happening actually different? I think that they definitely don't weave together stories that that didn't happen. I thought that was really interesting. You know, all the things that happen on those shows actually do happen. Um, it's just that they make them a little bit more dramatic than they actually were. For me, I just thought that there was so much, honestly, growth between you know of myself, of all the women that were on the show that that I felt like they didn't show any of that. So for me, it was just this amazing growth opportunity, and there was such close friendships between the women and and things like that. And that was just never shown. And the other thing is even in the love story, right? like i I had perceived the situation so differently than it than it was, or at least the way that then it was aired. Well, I didn't see it, but when I watch, which is not often, but whenever I've seen The Bachelorette and I see these girls that are hysterical crying over the guy that they just met, like, how does that, I don't, I never understood that. Like, what, is there some, is it the cocoon that they put you in that just makes that happen? Or is it the type of girls that they pick? Or I, I don't understand how somebody can be just so emotional over the guy that they you know, didn't know a couple of weeks ago. So it's definitely, I can say from experience now, because I actually am like, I'm pretty in check with my emotions. And I was so emotional on the show because we all were, we all cried all the time because I think it's because we're, because of the cocoon they put us in. Like that's the cocoon that they put us in is designed to make people go crazy. Like full stop the end. <laughs> like mm. It is designed to push you to your edge. It's literally the same you know, it's the same type of situation that they put people when they're in solitary confinement in. Like I was in a hotel room by myself for five days straight, even before filming started with nothing in it, like literally a room. So they put you in these crazy situations and this, you know, crazy cocoon 
that's designed to make you crack and you're around women all the time. So I think also even in terms of like dating, if you're around all these same women all day, every day, you put some guy in front of you, number one, everyone's going to be obsessed with him. And the other thing too, is that you, I think it's because you're so isolated and because the conversations that you're having with the guy are actually one-on-one and and genuine and you know his job in his job on the show is to pay attention to you it's it also i think just makes people think that they're more in love or obsessed than they are certainly for me that was the case because when we were filming i i truly did think at the end of the show that i loved this person that we were going to you know be together and then it was bizarre i got home from filming and it was it was like this light switch flipped and i thought whoa what was that like that was so weird i didn't even know that person <laughs> but you're you're basically like brainwashed it's crazy but i, I think so it's, it's, like it's contextual like just being in that environment makes you i guess if you're when you say you're in a hotel room for five days, do you like literally mean like you're in, like you can't leave? Yeah, you can't leave. You're literally in a room by yourself for five days. Like, <laughs> And then they do, they do that near the end too. Like when you're in what's called the hometown dates, like you're also, you're just in crazy isolation. Yeah. All, all the what time. What did you do? Well, I, you know, nothing. I would like, I would do hair masks and sleep. The good thing for me is I love to sleep. So, so I would nap or, you know, I would do like sit-ups and push-ups and... But no TV, no phone. What about, what about reading material? Can you read a book? No, you're not allowed a book. You're not allowed a pen. You're not allowed a paper. Like you're not really allowed anything. That's why for me, it really was like next level. I mean, for someone who had a a crazy meditation practice, that was the practice. Like, oh, can I meditate for four hours a day? I feel like I would have jumped out the window. Well, honestly, that's how, that's how I, 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 in retrospect, don't know how I did it. Like the idea now of me being in a hotel room for these, even one day, but I just fully, I don't know when you're in it, you just kind of surrender to it and... You, but you do go crazy. Like it was a really crazy transition. Me just kind of like reintegrating back into my normal life after it. Freaking amazing. All right. Let's talk about your real normal life now, which is you've left law and now you are doing retreats and coaching. So, you know, if we're at a cocktail party and I come up to you and I ask you, what do you do? How do you answer? So I help women to get in touch with their soul and then live their best lives. And I do that through coaching them one-on-one to help them, you know, really gain clarity on who they are and who they want to be and how they want to show up in life. I do that through leading these transformational retreats in Costa Rica, soon to be Bali and some other places in Canada. And I also run a women's empowerment circle where I get women to connect with one another and support each other into stepping into their highest potential. And I also teach and lead a lot of meditation programs. So is it a full-time job for you now where, you know, a tip, what's, what's a typical week look like? Is it, you know, you're on the phone all day doing like, you know, zoom calls or Skype calls or in-person things. And then, you know, every month, or every couple of months taking a retreat or what's what's how's it look different from what you used to do and and I know my suspicion is that you probably operated pretty well on the schedule right you were a lawyer you had to be there at a certain time but now your time is different like how does that feel from your law practice let's say yeah the the thing that's been so strange and I I think it was because I was maybe transitioning into this for so long is that it's been such an easy transition. It feels like this is just always what I did. And I think because I naturally am so used to being scheduled, I just sort of switched out where I'd be doing law work and instead now am am doing work that's just for the business. But the majority of what I'll do is I meet with clients. Either it depends on if they're in Toronto, then I meet with them in person. And then I have some clients in the States or other places. And so we do Zoom calls. So I have two days a week where it's just back-to-back coaching calls. So I'll literally spend all day Tuesday and all day Thursday with um, with clients just because I have a pretty full roster of one-on-one clients. And then the other days from that, um, on Wednesdays, I lead this women's event called Goddess Circle. I also teach meditation on those days. So that's kind of my meditation and community night. And then otherwise on Mondays and Fridays are when I'll plan for retreats, 
and I'll do other, I'm doing a few different uh, collaborations and, and branding partnerships right now. So I'll do that stuff on Mondays and two or Fridays and also, you know, schedule out content at that time. At this point, I'm leading a retreat once a month. And so I think that that will only continue now as things go on. So there's quite a bit of planning and whatnot that goes into those as well. And then as I lead them, then some of them are weekends and some of them are week-long ones. Do you have a really high level of fulfillment now in your life that you finally made this jump? Incredible, Yeah, incredibly. It also, it just feels like, you know, pure flow. It feels like, you know, exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. So I just, that to me is the most beautiful part of it is that I feel like, you know, even when I was in law, as much as I loved it, it still felt like work, you know, it still felt like, Oh, this is, I'm good at this and I know how to do this. But, you know, I can really say now that I feel like I'm in a pure flow state because the things that I'm doing come so naturally to me and feel so good for me. And, so that's been that's been the most incredible thing. So that's extremely fulfilling because I feel like, you know, totally in alignment, which is, you know, the best feeling. I love it. All right. So I want to move on to the play hard part of the show. You know, a lot of entrepreneurs are super driven and they just don't take the time to play. And playing hard uh, does not have to be uh, champagne spraying in Saint-Tropez, although it could be. <laughs> it could be something as simple as you know, taking the time to read the book that you've been trying to get to. But the point is that it's not work related. So the first question I have in this part of the show is how did hiking Machu Picchu shape your life? Ooh, that was my favorite travel experience of all time. It's just an incredibly powerful experience. I mean, firstly, because the trail is so, is so old. And so you, when you're there, you're just, you're so immersed in thinking of all the people before you who have walked that trail. Also this idea of how they even built Machu Picchu and like how these people would have been carrying stone by stone um, on this crazy trail this to build this incredible monument. It was, um, I don't know, it was just an incredibly beautiful experience of just, I don't know, I, I just felt so connected the whole time in it. That's the only way that I can explain. I just felt really inspired about life and about the cycles of life and about history and about how many, you know, people have walked the same path before us. And I don't know. And then to also obviously at the end to get to Machu Picchu, so you do this five day hike and the whole time that you're there, the guides are trained. They go through all sorts of crazy schooling to be able to lead the, to lead the hike. And so the whole time that you're hiking, they're giving you all this history and insight about, about the trail and about the history behind it, which is super cool. And, um, and then finally at the end of these five days, you get to Machu Picchu and it's just so awe-inspiring. Like it is just absolutely breathtaking and incredible. But the thing to me, honestly, that I took away was, oh my gosh, this monument or, or, you know, temple or what, you know, whatever people refer to it as is in the middle of nowhere. And these people, it's incredible to look at it, like to look at all the little pieces of stone that went into making it what it is. And just to imagine at the time that it was built, it's, it's magical. Like I can't even imagine how they put it together when they did. Yeah, I mean, there's a reason why Machu Picchu is on everybody's bucket list because it's it's incredible, and uh, I'm I'm super excited to go there myself. But you also did something different for sure. How did you find yourself entering a Disney princess contest at 22, and what did you learn from that? That's good research. <laughs> when I when I was 22, I entered a Disney princess contest because I decided that, um, there were these amazing Christian Louboutin shoes that you would get if you won. And I was, I'm also the biggest Disney fan. I love Disney world and I love all things Disney. And so I was just reading online one day and they had said this ad of, you can get these amazing sparkly Christian Louboutin shoes if you enter this contest. And I was like, two, I was honestly two days or three days into, <laughs> into my law career and I just applied for it. And then I got a call back to actually enter this contest. And then I, I went for it. And the funny thing is that because you get these shoes, potentially, if you win on the other end of it, they had to come to my office to see if the shoes would fit, like actually as if you were Cinderella. <laughs> and so that was the thing. That's why my firm was so amazing. They just knew from the beginning that I was a handful. I was like, oh, just don't worry about it. I just, <laughs> I've just entered a Disney princess concert or a contest. They're going to come to to come to let me try these shoes on right now. Just don't mind me. And then they show up and these shoes are just like encrusted with, with 
crystals and they're so over the top, but they would have been so amazing had I won them, but I didn't actually win them in the end. It's amazing what what a woman will do for a red bottom soul, right? Literally. (laughs) Can you tell us the story of what it felt like to be in Hua Yan in Vietnam, completely alone and what it taught you about yourself? Okay. So yeah, I found myself in this tiny town in Vietnam. I was, uh, I was traveling there by myself. And the night before I traveled into Ho Chi Minh City, I was in another town called Hoi An. And I, when you leave Vietnam, you can't um, trans, transfer your money. So basically, you have to spend the money that you've already taken out. Nobody will change Vietnamese money for you once you leave Vietnam. And so I didn't want to take out any more money. And so I left my um, debit card and my credit card. I took them out of my purse when I went out the night before because I was wanted to make I wanted to make sure that I wouldn't spend any more money. And so I thought that was my rule. I put the, I put my credit card and debit card on the bedside table. And then I came home from going up for dinner and I went to sleep. And then I had to get up early to get on a 6am flight. So I was kind of disheveled when I woke up and I got into the cab and basically I forgot my debit card and credit card in my hotel room. So I though still get onto my flight, not realizing this. And then I end up in Ho Chi Minh City for, I have a layover there for 16 hours before I then am supposed to get on connecting flights first to Hong Kong where there I would sleep over there for 12 hours. And then I would get on another connecting flight to then go to Bali. So I was about to embark on this two-day whirlwind of sort of connecting flights in different countries. And then I would ultimately end up in Bali. And then I was going to stay in Bali for for, um, two weeks after that. And so when I get to Ho Chi Minh City, I realize that I don't have my debit or my visa card. And because I spent all the money that I had left that in Vietnamese money, I literally had like the equivalent of $8 with me. And it was also New Year's Day. And because it was for like fast forward, basically it was the middle of the night on New Year's back in Canada. And so I basically was in the city that I didn't know anyone, where most things were closed, that I couldn't get a hold of my friends or family because it was the middle of the night and also all banks were closed. So nobody could wire me money. So I was just stranded and alone with no money in this crazy city in the middle of Vietnam. And so what I learned... So then I ended up deciding that I had to be resourceful and figure out how I was going to get money because I needed to get on my connecting flights. I needed to get money for a hotel to stay over when I was in Hong Kong. I needed to then figure out what I was going to do in Bali. And there was no way basically for my friends or family to wire me money at that point. So I'm literally, I decide that I'll go to um, the Burger King because if you're traveling, you will know that every kind of American chain restaurant will have free Wi-Fi. So I went there so that I could try and like get on the internet and figure out what to do next. And when I was there, I saw this couple and the couple looked to be kind of Canadian. And I went up to them and I said, Hey, I lost my debit card and visa card. I have $8. What do you think I should do? <laughs> like I was, I really didn't know. And they were like, Oh, we can't help you. We, you know, we're just here traveling. And then they ended up coming up to me about 10 minutes later because they saw how disheveled I was. And they offered to give me $100 US, which ended up being exactly the amount of money that I needed to pay for my hotel room when I was in Hong Kong and then to pay for my first night of accommodation in Bali. I later figured out that there was a girl that I knew from home that was coming to Bali, but two days after I was, but she could give me money once she arrived there. And so what I learned from that whole experience was that the universe always provides that the right people will show up with the exact amount of money that you need in the moment that you need it. And I think at that point it was a true it was a tr- like everything actually completely flowed, even though I had no money, no control, no way of like getting anywhere that the right people showed up at the right moment with the exact amount of money that I needed that then allowed everything else to flow that this girl happened to be coming to Bali two days after me. And so I just learned that you always have to trust, like even when things are destitute or, or you feel like you don't have enough money coming in, or you feel like things aren't working out for you, that the right people at the right time or the right opportunities will always come up. It's not in the way you imagine. Oh my God. I like I was I was just along for a ride with that story. Yeah. I was I was <laughs> literally long. finding myself. That was a great you're a good storyteller. That was just like I just was right there with you. I can't even imagine how scared you must have been, or maybe you maybe you weren't. 
Well, I was, I was also this, you know, I was like 24 by myself in downtown Vietnam. You know, I think that's the other thing for it's for any of us when we travel alone, but I think, you know, particularly as young women, when you're traveling by yourself and you're like, okay, I'm just straight up stranded in this strange city where I don't speak the language where they're also, for whatever reason there were, normally you can find other expats or people that speak the language, but they just weren't around. Like there was no one there. It was scary. It was like one of the most, that was one of the scariest moments I think for me, because the other thing too, is that if I didn't get money to then be able to even get back to the airport or whatever else, it meant that my flight from Ho Chi Minh city to Hong Kong, I would have had to forfeit Then my flight from Hong Kong to Bali. I would have had to forfeit. It just, I would have lost a ton of money too. Um, and not been able to rebook and would have just been, you know, stranded for a while. How cool was it that they gave you a hundred bucks? It was so amazing. It was, and then it's funny because this guy and I are now friends. He's actually from South Africa. Like I'm supposed to go to South Africa to visit him. We still keep in touch. He's a really awesome guy, and I like obviously paid him back when I got back to Canada. That's amazing. You have to go to South Africa. We just got back. It was incredible. Oh, awesome! Yeah, I want to. If you could spend one month anywhere in the world, where would it be, and why? Okay, if I were to spend one month anywhere in the world and why, it would be uh, a toss-up between uh, Ubud in Bali. So actually, at the end of that story, then I, I ended up in Ubud. And it's just it was a place that I felt really connected to my creativity. And so if I were to go for a month and just kind of connect in and, and write and reflect and do yoga and eat amazing food and meet incredible people. I think Ubud's the place to do it. It's just a really beautiful, magical place with a lot of really awesome people traveling through. And then similar to that, there's a town that I actually, I do go to often and I spend always about two or three weeks there. It's where I lead one of my retreats now and it's called Nosara in Costa Rica. And it's just an amazing place where I feel super connected to nature and to myself. And if I'm going to go anywhere for a month, I think that that's kind of the purpose is just for me to, to reconnect with who I am, what I want and how I want to show up. Is Ubud in the jungle or on the water or both? It's uh, it's mainland. Yeah. So it's, it's not, mainland. it's not on the water. Um, it's in the middle of all these rice fields. Wow. Okay. That, that's another name that keeps popping up. If you could go to one restaurant before you die, where would your last meal be? Mm, my last meal would be in New York City at, I believe it's called Daniel's. It's Daniel. I forget his... Yeah, it's called Daniel's. Daniel is... Uh, he also has a restaurant in Toronto. I don't recall his last name, but it would be this beautiful... His food is French focused and... His restaurants are all incredible with amazing food and beautiful attention to... Oh, Daniel Blued. So that that's who it is. So it would be there. And also New York is my favorite place to go out for meals. So it would be there. Yeah, New York's amazing. It's the center of the universe. If you had all the time and the money in the world to pursue a hobby or a recreational activity, what would it be and why? You know, honestly, my favorite recreational activity to do really is yoga. I love doing yoga. And so if I had all the time in the world, I would go to yoga, you know, for hours and hours each day with different amazing teachers and be doing that kind of all around the world. What's the one thing that you've always wanted to learn, but you just haven't gotten around to yet? I've always wanted to learn Spanish and I haven't gotten around to it. That came out of that trip when I was in Peru um, in South America, they really on in South America, they really don't speak English. So I really was inspired to learn there. And, and same thing in Costa Rica, it's obviously Spanish there, but I just haven't gotten around to doing it. All right, let's move on to the rapid fire round. This is a basically first thing that comes to your mind round, just pop it out. What would your friends say is one of your superpowers? My vibrancy and passion for life. What's one of the things you're afraid of right now? That I wouldn't live up to my fullest potential. What keeps you up at night? Whether I'm going to be able to have the energy to do all the things that I'm supposed to do the next day. <laughs> what do people never ask you, but you wish they did? People never ask me about what stresses me out. Hmm. What does stress you out? 
I think just, you know, that same idea of whether I'll live up to my potential or not, or also just, again, this energy idea, like, will I have all the energy that I need to do the things that, that I want to do. But I think a lot of people look to me as being this kind of like beacon of, of positivity and happiness. And so they kind of, so I don't often talk about people of like, oh, this is what I'm working with right now, or this is what I'm stressed about or. Yep. I get that. What book have you reread the most? The Surrender Experiment by Michael Singer. What's the one thing that you own and probably should throw out, but you never will? Ooh, my high school sweatshirt. (laughs) (laughs) If you had to give a TED Talk on nothing that you're known for or nothing that you speak about, and it could be on anything that you like to do or anything that you have a passion for at all, what would it be? It would be on Tantra and how to use it in modern life. Tantra, is that the sex thing? Yeah, well, it's also, it's just a, it's a breathing technique too that just makes you feel like you're having sex with the universe just by breathing. <laughs> it's amazing. Well, I wish we weren't at the end of the show. I wish we would have started with that. <laughs> now, well, listen, I'm going to see you in LA. We're going to have to, you're going to have to give me a lesson. I want to understand yeah, I'll that. Yeah, you. Okay. And the last question is going to be a little bit of a change. What one question would you like to ask me? I would like to ask you... At what point, because I know that you've just had this pivot point in your life, do you think that you'll be continually now pivoting? And if so, are you already feeling a new pivot coming on? Well, I don't feel a new pivot coming on. I've been spending the last mm, probably five to 10 years trying to figure out how to get out of professional practice. Um, and out of the state of Georgia and move into something that I'm passionate about in a location that I'm passionate about, which is Southern California. And we set the date and I will officially retire and walk away from the practice in 18 months, which means that six of those months I'll be living in California running it remotely. I started doing the podcast, kind of like what you and I talked about with um, with Law, how you had one foot in here and one foot in there. And I did that with the podcast over the course of the last year. It's gained a lot of traction. We've done really well with it. And um, now moving into uh, the next pivot, which is uh, my masterminds. And the masterminds almost uh, half sold out already and we haven't even officially announced it. Where you know We're basically taking type A six and seven figure entrepreneurs and putting more play into their life and also doing mastermind exercises too. And we got some really cool locations around the world and I'll be doing that while living uh, in LA. And you know what's after that, what the next, next pivot is, I have no idea. I'm just really in flow to kind of use you know, the, the, the through line of what we've been talking about in a way that just feels so good. I've spent probably the last six months setting the practice up so that it functions entirely without me. So that if something goes wrong now, while I'm still here in Atlanta, I can run in and kind of fix it. But I know that I'm going to need to run it completely remotely, 3,000 miles away in California. So I'm sort of simulating what that looks like without me here. So I'm forcing myself to not go into the office. It didn't start that way. It started with you know, going from five days a week to four to three to two to one. And now I'm going in every other Monday morning for three hours to see if anything's lost, broken, or stolen and, um, you know, developing systems and strategies to make sure that it works. And so I'm kind of managing it remotely, but, um, long answer to the question, but that's how I would best answer that. Ah, yeah. Big, a big change from Atlanta to LA. Mm, I'm excited about it. I just, I need to be around my people. I need to be around 70 degrees, sunny, blue skies, no humidity. I need to be around, um, some of our mutual friends like, you know, Chris and Lori and a lot of the people that are in our masterminds, uh, Lewis house, et cetera. I'm just, it just seems that most of the people that I'm connected with in in my life live there and I just want to be around them. I feel a little isolated here. And I just, you know how you just know, like Atlanta was amazing for me when I was, you know, when I first moved from New York, I loved it. But I just hit a point now where I just don't want to be here anymore. And I just, it's spitting me out. (laughs) Right. I was going to say, it's that same idea with the cocoon, you know. Yeah. It's just spitting me out. And I, you know, we've got, like I'm flying to LA in the morning to go for the weekend to look at schools uh, for Sophia. 
and uh, you know, I'll be there for two or three days. Then I'm flying back, and then I'll be there the following week uh, for our mastermind. So I'm kind of you know just going back and forth now, looking at looking at real estate and looking at schools, and you know, just making this into a reality. And I'm really excited about it. That is amazing. Cool, right? Yes. Well, I cannot thank you enough for taking the time. Super excited to see you next week. Do you have any final words, suggestions, or an ask for the people that are listening? I think that the main thing that I always like to tell people is just, you know, really to follow those, those nudge nudges from their soul. I think we all get them. Our, our intuitive voice is always trying to speak to us. And then, you know, the mind jumps in with so many reasons why we shouldn't or couldn't. But the more that you really just follow those nudges, the more that life is going to open up for you in the most beautiful way. Katie, that was awesome. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks for listening. If you love this episode and you know someone that needs some help in either stepping up their work hard game or their play hard game, it would mean the world to me if you shared this podcast with them to help me get this movement out there. So if you like what you heard, head on over to iTunes, take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and I will be forever grateful. So until the next episode, excuses are over. It's time to live.